You're listening to IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind and Print Disabled. Welcome to the reading of the Council Bluffs Daily Nonpareil for March 9th, 2023. I'm Lynn McCool from Drake University. Here's our first story. On the front page, we begin with the headline, Cool, Services Won't Change. ISD superintendent says state government organization likely to have little impact. Despite its broad scope, Governor Kim Reynolds' plan to restructure state government may not have a big impact on Iowa School for the Deaf, its leader said Wednesday. From everything that's been said to me and that I've read, and I've read a lot, I do not anticipate that the services we provide to our students will change, said John Cool, interim superintendent at ISD. There's going to be some changes behind the scenes. I don't anticipate any changes on a daily basis. The bill, which would consolidate the executive branch's 37 departments into 16, passed the Iowa Senate Tuesday, but the House is not expected to vote on it until next week. Because the legislation would take ISD out of the hands of the Board of Regents and put it under the control of the Department of Education, some people in the deaf and hard of hearing community worried that it would be a prelude to closing the school. But there doesn't seem to be any movement afoot in Des Moines to close ISD, according to Cool. I've talked to the Department of Education, the Governor's Office, the Board of Regents, and that's not even what's on the table, he said. I've had conversations with Education Director Ann Lebo and Deputy Director Mark Ford. They're assuring me that we don't see any changes to the schools. The superintendent will autonomously operate the special schools. Lebo has resigned effective March 14, but Governor Rendell's has named Chad Aldis as her replacement. A growing number of students are looking for to ISD for their education, Cool said. ISD's population continues to increase, he said. ISD's student population plummeted to 68 in 2021 in the midst of the pandemic, but has rebounded dramatically, Cool said. The school started the 2022-23 school year with 92 students and has now reached 100. One reason I think this is happening is school districts are finding it increasingly difficult to find teachers of the deaf, he said. Schools are finding it very difficult to find interpreters, too. The only college in the state that has a program for teachers of the deaf is the Scott County Community College, Cool said. They turn out a very small number, and that's not enough. A program at Augustana University in neighboring Sioux Falls, South Dakota, has closed. Only a few of the larger school districts in the state, such as Des Moines, Cedar Rapids, and Waterloo, offer programs, especially for deaf and hard of hearing students, Cool said. Decorah used to have one, but has discontinued it. Des Moines has dropped early childhood instruction from its program. ISD has an outreach assessment team that serves children beginning at age three. Director Tina Kalud has done 30 assessments this year, Cool said. We are getting referrals as a result of students meeting our outreach director, he said. ISD offers benefits beyond instruction for deaf and hard of hearing students, Cool said. He can see the effects when they transfer to ISD from a conventional school. In the mainstream, they were isolated and couldn't participate in things, he said. Here, they can participate in things and you can see them just light up. Social emotional learning is a key to academic performance. And here, they have an opportunity to thrive 
in the social and emotional learning. There are images attached to this article. It is a small image of cool portrait shot of cool. The large image on the front page this morning has the caption foggy morning in the bluffs and it shows a picture of cars driving in fog across the Mississippi Missouri River. The main image on the front page the caption reads foggy morning in the bluffs artist Albert Paley's Odyssey installation is shrouded in fog as traffic moves along 24th Street near Interstate 80 on Wednesday March 8, 2023. Patchy fog is expected before 7 a.m. today according to the National Weather Service. The image shows cars driving both directions in foggy weather. Next, GOP lawmakers pass ban on gender-affirming care for minors. Aaron Murphy and Caleb McCullough, Lee Gazette, Des Moines Bureau. The main image attached to this article, the caption reads, Joe Allen of Des Moines speaks during a rally to support LGBTQ individuals and protest what advocates describe as anti-LGBTQ bills at the Iowa Capitol on Wednesday. Aaron Murphy, The Gazette. From Des Moines, a proposed ban on gender-affirming care for minors in Iowa is on its way to Governor Kim Reynolds' desk. Republican state lawmakers passed the ban and other LGBTQ bills over the past two days, putting them en route to Reynolds on Wednesday. Reynolds' office did not immediately respond Wednesday when asked whether she plans to sign the bill into law once it reaches her. Thousands of Iowans have publicly protested this bill and others that have been moving through the Iowa legislature over the past week. Students at dozens of schools across the state walked out of classes, and hundreds attended two rallies at the Iowa Capitol this past week on Sunday and again on Wednesday. If the bill is, is signed into law, it likely will be at least temporarily halted by a legal challenge. Similar bills in other states are being challenged in the courts, including in Arkansas, Alabama, Tennessee, and Texas. Republican legislators who proposed and advanced the ban on gender-affirming care say it is necessary to protect children from medical care and treatments when the science is not settled, even though all major medical groups in the U.S. say the treatments are safe and the vast majority of studies show that the care leads to better health, mental health outcomes. Studies cite during debate Wednesday, Representative Steve Holt, Rep Republican from Denison, who oversaw the bill's movement in the Iowa House, points to studies in Europe including one that says more study is needed on the long-term effects of gender-affirming care. The study says there is some evidence that individuals who have sex reassignment have considerably higher risks for mortality, suicidal behavior, and psychiatric morbidity than the general population. Our children deserve the time to grow into themselves, to find themselves, to go through phases without medical interventions that are unproven in their efficacy, Holt said. It is for these reasons that I believe we should wait on these life-altering procedures and therapies for children until they are adults. During the debate in the Iowa Senate on Tuesday, Senator Jeff Elder, Republican from State Center, who oversaw the bill's movement in the chamber, pointed to a study that he said illustrates his concern for the long-term impacts of hormonal treatment. The 2018 study, which can be found in the American Academy of Pediatrics website, says the long-term side effects of hormonal treatment could include bone density loss and also says more research is needed on those long-term impacts. However, it also concludes the treatments benefit 
the patients and are generally safe. Republican Representative Jeff Shipley pointed to the guidance from the World Professional Association for Transgender Health, which says the number of studies is still low and there are few outcome studies that follow youth into adulthood. Still, those guidelines recommend puberty blockers and hormone treatment in adolescents with gender dysphoria who meet certain conditions, and the organization vehemently opposes bills like the one passed by Iowa Republicans. Representative Austin Baith, Democrat Des Moines, who was a physician, noted the preponderance of evidence continues to show that while the treatments sometimes come with side effects, they are safe, and that studies and physicians that cast doubt on the treatment safety are outliers. It takes lots of physicians to come together looking at all the studies, not cherry-picking them to support an agenda, Baith said. But looking at the mountain of evidence, the preponderance of evidence, and deciding what is the most likely answer to this question. What the bill does. The bill would ban doctors in the state from providing puberty blockers, hormones, and surgeries to minors under age 18 to treat gender dysphoria. Doctors who violate the bill would be subject to discipline from a state licensing board, and individuals could bring lawsuits against doctors who perform gender-affirming care. Minors who are receiving medical treatment now would have 180 days to discontinue that care. Parental choice. Parental choice. Brian Losey, Republican, Bondurant, who was one of five House Republicans voting against the bill, said the bill runs counter to the parental choice mantra Republicans frequently champion. The doctors who testified to lawmakers in February said puberty blockers, medications that stop the onset of puberty, are reversible. While the effects of hormone treatment are mostly reversible, surgery, which generally means breast reduction, is not reversible. Doctors also told lawmakers that gender-affirming care is a practice that occurs after months of careful evaluation from multiple doctors and that parental consent is always involved. Democrats said the bill is a rash reaction to concerns over the efficacy of the care, noting all major medical organizations in the U.S. support interventions for youth with persistent gender dysphoria. The American Medical Association the American Academy of Pediatrics, and the American Psychiatric Association all include gender-affirming care for youth in their guidelines. Protest. As lawmakers deliberated the bills, a couple of hundred people gathered in the Capitol's first-floor rotunda to protest the measures they said would harm LGBTQ youth and strip them of their rights. Joe Allen, a photographer from Des Moines who is non-binary, said it is difficult to live in Iowa given the legislation under consideration. A few speakers at the rally said they are considering leaving the state over the proposals. Anti-trans bills have nothing to do about privacy but are focused on expelling trans folks from public life, Allen said. We are not going anywhere and despite the bills that you put out against us, we will continue to be our most authentic trans selves. Just north of Iowa on Wednesday, Minnesota Governor Tim Waltz, a Democrat, signed an executive order that protects trans people, families, and care providers from a range of legal repercussions for traveling to Minnesota for gender-affirming care, the Associated Press reported. Waltz announced his signing on social media, saying in the post, my message is clear. Here in Minnesota, our LGBTQ plus neighbors 
will not be denied or punished for seeking life-affirming and life-saving medical care. Other bills. The Senate late Tuesday also passed a bill that would prohibit transgender students from using school bathrooms that correspond with their gender identity. Senate Republicans described the proposal as common sense and a way to ensure the privacy and safety of all students. Data overwhelmingly shows that incidents of sexual assault in school bathrooms are rare and that transgender individuals are far more likely to be victims of sexual assault than non-transgender people, including at schools with prescriptive bathroom policies. House Republicans also passed a bill largely along party lines that bans instruction on gender identity and sexual orientation in kindergarten through sixth grade. Republican Representative Skylar Wheeler, the chair of the House Education Committee and the bill's floor's manager said the bill prevents teaching about topics that he thinks should be left to parents, saying students should learn about classic school subjects and not social issues. They do not go to school to learn about woke, radical gender ideology, he said. Put simply, parents should parent and teachers should teach. The legislation mirrors provisions in a more expansive bill proposed by Governor Kim Reynolds, which also includes restrictions on library books and parental consent for children to transition their gender at school. It has drawn comparisons to Florida's so-called don't say gay law. Democrats said the bill would bar teachers from answering questions from their students and teach about LGBTQ people. If you can't talk about the real world and the real people in it, who sometimes happen to be from the LGBTQ plus community, then what's the use of being there, said Representative Ruth Ann Gaines of Des Moines, a former K-12 teacher and current community college professor. Teaching and learning involves more than books. The top story of today is Dancing with the Stars of TJ Approaches. The bright lights soon to hit dancers, staff members, Tim Johnson. The Thomas Jefferson High School dance team will hold its sixth annual Dancing with the Stars of TJ Friday at 6 p.m. in the school auditorium. The event pairs select school employees with dance team members in a dance competition that probably won't be on TV anytime soon. Each of the dancers on my team picks a staff member at TJ, whether that is a teacher, coach, para, administrator, whoever they'd like, said Michaela Patterson, head dance coach. They teach them a short, silly dance routine and perform it with them at our show. This year's show will feature the graceful moves of Mrs. Keefe, Mrs. Whitmore, Mr. Wallerman, Mr. Scow, Mrs. Jurgens, Mrs. Kavman, and Mrs. Pluger, she said. A panel of judges provides critiques and an overall score, Patterson said. Mrs. Ryan, Mrs. Runge, Mrs. Clark, and Mrs. Bush will adjudicate Friday's action. The judges' critiques are hilarious and probably not helpful at all, but provide a lot of entertainment to the crowd. Ultimately, the winner is chosen by the audience, Patterson said. Each member of the audience receives a voting ballot with their ticket, and they can purchase additional votes for $1, she said. This is where we raise a lot of our funds. The dance acts usually have a theme, Patterson said. A couple of years ago, we had our activities director dress up as a Ken and drive a Barbie car on stage, she said. We've had our choir teacher dress up as a woman and dance to Material Girl. We had a science teacher drop into the splits last year, which no one expected. She ended up winning the show. 
The kids and staff have a lot of fun with this show and get to let loose and be really goofy together, which is awesome for our students to see, Patterson said. TJ staff members are always willing to go above and beyond for our students, just part of what makes being a yellow jacket so great. Proceeds from the event fund the dance program and cover various expenses, Patterson said. Our kids purchase their own uniforms, shoes, equipment, pay for summer camp, she said. We have to fundraise for registration fees and travel to competitions. We fundraise to fund the many community service projects we do. The team also raises money by operating Wild Willie's fireworks stand during its season and has helped at Vela's Pumpkin Patch, bust tables at Pizza Ranch, sold cookie dough, and painted yellow jackets on driveways to raise funds, Patterson said. Dancing with the stars of TJ, though, is by far our favorite fundraiser, she said. Tickets are $8 in advance or $15 at the door. For more information, visit facebook.com forward slash TJ Dance Team. Next article is Nikki Haley Highlights Education and the Economy in Visit to Council Bluffs. This article also includes an image with the caption, Former South Carolina Governor and U.S. Ambassador to the United Nations Nikki Haley, who is running for president as a Republican in 2024, speaks during a town hall and campaign stop at Thunder Bowl in Council Bluffs on Wednesday. The image shows Haley standing with a microphone in one hand and pointing to the American flag behind her. GOP presidential hopeful Nikki Haley highlights education and the economy in Visit to Council Bluffs' David Goldspitz. The economy and education were two of the notes from former United States Ambassador to the United Nations and 2024 Republican presidential candidate Nikki Haley saying to a standing room only crowd of enthusiastic supporters at a town hall event Wednesday night at Thunderbolts The Gathering Room. In her opening remarks, Haley touched on her upbringing of being the daughter of the only Indian immigrant family living in a small rural town in central South Carolina. We weren't white enough to be white, and we weren't black enough to be black, Haley said. They didn't know who we were, what we were, or why we were there. Haley said that regardless of how they might have been looked at by their neighbors, their, her parents instilled in her and her siblings a strong sense of pride in the U.S. There was never a day they didn't tell me, my brothers and my sister, that even on our worst day, we are blessed to live in America, Haley said. In a stump speech that lasted for about 30 minutes, Haley lamented the woeful state of the country today, laying blame at the feet of both Republicans and Democrats alike, particularly when it comes to the economy. She narrowed in on the national deficit and legislature laden with earmarks. Republicans and Democrats did that to us, Haley said. There are no saints in Congress. She pointed to the $2.2 trillion COVID relief bill that was passed with no accountability in March 2020. The House of Representatives voted 419 to 6 for the CARES Act legislation, while in the Senate, the vote was 96 to 0. Haley lambasted Republicans for bringing back earmarks, which have long been described as wasteful pet projects for politicians' constituents back home. How offensive is that to a taxpayer? Haley asked. Haley also took aim at Social Security and Medicare, claiming that they both would be bankrupt within 10 years. Instead of raising taxes, which Haley called the lazy way out, she wants to cut off 
younger generations from these government programs. You reform the entitlement, but you do it in a way that doesn't take anything away from seniors or people who are ready to re retire, Haley said. You focus on the new generation. Haley wants to raise the retirement age, though she didn't specify what she thought was appropriate, and expand the Medicare Advantage program to create more competition, which she says will lower costs. Pivoting to education, Haley claimed that 90% of our kids are still under CRT, or critical race theory, which is a graduate student level academic concept that states that racism is more than individual bias and that over the decades and centuries, it is embedded in the fabric of the United States. Haley also believes that Florida's parental rights and education bill, more commonly known as the don't say gay bill, doesn't go far enough and that any sort of sex or gender education should be left completely up to parents. That's not the role for schools, she said. That's the role for parents. Parents need to decide what their kids need to know. They need to be the ones teaching it, explaining it, dealing with all of that. It should be between families and church and kids, and government and schools need to stay out of that. At the end of her remarks, Haley spoke about what she sees as the biggest problem facing the country right now. This national self-loathing is killing us, she said. The idea that people are saying America's bad and that it's rotten and we're racist, that could not be further from the truth. Haley pointed to her own election to governor of South Carolina. I was the first female minority governor in history as evidence. We have to teach our kids that this is the best country on earth, Haley said. Capitalism has saved more people in human history than anything else. Socialism never works no matter where it's been tried. But we need to focus on what will unify this country, and what will unify this country is when we all have a national purpose and we ask our oppo opponents to join us. Haley recalled the halcyon days of her youth, how simple everything was, and she wanted to return the country to that time. We can go back to that country that is proud and strong, Haley said. I believe in that. I have faith in that. And the reason is important to me is because I want my parents to know that when they came here, they made the right decision. I want my husband who went to Afghanistan and all his military brothers and sisters to know that their sacrifice meant something. I want my children to know that their best days are ahead of them and that there's nothing they can't do. Haley was appointed U.S. Ambassador to the United Nations in 2017, a position she held for two years. Prior to that, she was twice elected governor of South Carolina, and she served six years in the South Carolina House of Representatives. Haley came in a distant fourth in a recent conservative political action conference, CPAC, straw poll, netting 3% of the votes from the annual conservative conference's attendees behind former President Donald Trump, 62%, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, 20%, and Michigan businessman Perry Johnson, 5%. CPAC attendees also weighed in on their choice for vice president, giving Haley 10% of the vote, which she put her in third place behind failed Arizona gubernatorial candidate Carrie Lake, 20%, and DeSantis, 14%. We can continue on with our next article, March 9th, Face of the Day, Justino Franco, which includes an image of Justino Franco holding electronics and wearing a a sweatshirt with a football helmet. Justino Franco is a fan of socializing and hanging out at Teen Central. Franco, 16, was born in Council Bluffs but lived in Omaha for a while growing up. 
He attended Bancroft Elementary School across the river, but his family moved back to the bluffs during the start of middle school. He attended Lewis Central Middle School and is now a sophomore in high school at LC. He said his high school experience has been good so far and he's enjoying his time as a Titan. He said there are new challenges in high school and he likes working out in the school's weight room. He played basketball last year and is considering getting into sports later down the road. Outside of school, he recently had his birthday and is now learning the ways of the road with his learner's permit. Franco was spotted at the Council Bluffs Public Library yesterday where he was spending some time after school at Teen Central. Teen Central is a second-floor getaway for middle and high school students in the area. The space offers places to socialize, computers to game on or work on homework, free crafting projects, and other programming. Wednesday afternoon, Franco and a pal were swinging away while gaming with Teen Central's Oculus Quest 2 virtual reality sets. They were playing Job Simulator, a game which parodies the workplace experience. Teen Central welcomes all teens in the area the library serves and is hoping to see you soon. More information can be found at councilbluffslibrary.org. Next story is Pickleball Classic this weekend. The image associated with this article, J.J. Harvey Wright and Mark Stageman compete in a match during the grand opening of the Council Bluffs area Pickleball Club's new facilities at the Iowa West Fieldhouse on Wednesday, September 25, 2019. Now the article. Council Bluffs Area Pickleball and the City of Council Bluffs Parks and Recreation will join Pickleball Omaha to present the Council Bluffs and Omaha Pickleball Showcase from Friday, March 10th through Sunday, March 12th at the Iowa West Fieldhouse, 5 Arena Way in Council Bluffs. More than 300 participants from ages 12 to 80 will compete in more than 35 divisions, Participants hail from Iowa, Nebraska, Oklahoma, South Dakota, Minnesota, Pennsylvania, Hawaii, Missouri, Arizona, Wisconsin, Wyoming, South Carolina, North Dakota, California, Kansas, Montana, and North Carolina. Pickleball and sports-related vendors will be available on Saturday and Sunday. You're listening to the Council Bluffs Daily Nonpareil for Thursday, March 9th, on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind and Print Handicapped in Des Moines. I'm Lynn McCool from Drake University. IRIS volunteers love to hear from listeners. If you have any comments or questions about this or any IRIS program, please call toll-free from anywhere in Iowa at 877-40. You're listening to the Council Bluffs Daily Nonpareil for Thursday, March 9th, 2023, on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind and Print Handicapped in Des Moines. I'm Lynn McCool from Drake University. IRIS volunteers love to hear from listeners. If you have any comments or questions about this or any IRIS program, please call toll-free from anywhere in Iowa at 877-404-4747. Now, in the Lifestyle section... This article, titled, Consumers Make Airlines Shape Up, Ed, Tri- Ed Perkins, Tribune Content Agency. As part of the upcoming must-do bill in Congress to reauthorize the Federal Aviation Administration, a partnership of the leading consumer advocacy organizations has given Congress a list of consumer protections that should be included. It's a long list, but there's nothing in it that isn't both reasonable and necessary. As we point out, I'm a very minor member of that partnership. 
The airlines took more than $50 billion to keep them afloat during the pandemic and ready to resume when it was over. But all too much of that money got used for something other than keeping ready to, to resume full-scale flying. Their inability to cope with holiday traffic last winter was a truly bipartisan failure, irritating red state and blue state voters alike, leaving a possible opening to require improvements. We probably won't get everything we ask for, but we're still asking. From the lifestyle section, consumers make airlines shape up. As part of the upcoming must-do bill in Congress to reauthorize the Federal Aviation Administration, a partnership of the leading consumer advocacy organizations has given Congress a list of consumer protections that should be included. It's a long list, but there's nothing in it that isn't both reasonable and necessary. As we point out, I'm a very minor member of that partnership. The airlines took more than $50 billion to keep, help keep them afloat during the pandemic and ready to resume when it was over. But all too much of that money got used for something other than keeping ready to resume full-scale flying. Their inability to cope with holiday traffic last winter was a truly bipartisan failure, irritating red state and blue state voters alike, leaving a possible opening to require improvements. We probably won't get everything we asked for, but we're still asking. Perhaps the most obvious need is a legally binding requirement that airlines provide both care, including meals and accommodations when appropriate, and compensation for passengers on delayed and canceled flights. Current European requirements, which are working well, can serve as a template. Another less obvious approach is to mandate reciprocity among all airlines. If a flight is significantly delayed or canceled for any reason, passengers on that flight should be transferred to another line at no extra cost if the second line could transport the travelers more quickly than the original line. This is a retro idea that was formerly in tariff rule 240 prior to deregulation. It worked well back then when average load factors were around 60%. Although it would be less effective now, it's still a good idea. The list also calls for reforming airline fees, including a possible redundant requirement that airlines seat a minor child next to a parent or caregiver at no additional charge. I say redundant because, as you have probably seen, United just announced, yeah, we can do that, and the other lines will almost surely fall into line. Still, what United giveth, United can taketh back, and a legal requirement couldn't hurt. Of indirect importance to consumers, the list suggests ending the tax exemption on airline ancillary fees, now a major part of revenues. Additional tax revenues would help maintain critical infrastructure. And of long-term importance, Congress needs to redress the unanticipated shield for airlines that courts have interpreted as part of deregulation. That would mean giving consumers the right of private legal action and state attorneys general the authority to enforce their state's consumer protection laws. Don't overlook airports. The list calls for Congress to remove some of the roadblocks that hinder and delay new airport construction and require consumer representation on airport governing bodies. Some items on the list are less clear. First bullet. Mandating minimum seat size should be an important safety consideration, but as I've noticed before, seats on the 737 and A320 planes that dominate today's fleets are already as wide as possible, 
So the only way to make seats wider is to take seats out, a road to higher fares that nobody wants to travel. Second bullet, specifying minimum basic standard services. A great objective, but agreement on what should be included is lacking. Ditto full, fair, display, clarity. These are worthy objectives, but implementation could pose real problems. Still, it doesn't hurt to ask. Last but not least is a requirement that airlines notify frequent flyers of mileage devaluations at least 60 days in advance. Over the years, the Department of Transportation has largely ignored frequent flyer A-buses, but frequent flyer issues have become so important that benign neglect is no longer appropriate. Although this list sounds long enough, it leaves out some key issues. Chief among them is reform of the future credit and vouchers airlines issue in lieu of cash when they can. Reforms should include no expiration dates and mandatory cash conversion after a set time. There's still plenty left to get done. Let's hope some of it actually gets done. Continuing from the lifestyle section, this article, Worming Out of Piano Lessons with Grandma. My grandma could play any song in any key. She was a tiny thing with rounded edges that bounced on the piano bench as she rippled keys up and down the keyboard. The entire piano bounced with her. That music genre missed me. Yet undaunted, utilizing a few years I spent on a piano bench, I now give music lessons to children related by blood. I may not be the best teacher, but my rates are good, free. The first two students were twin granddaughters, followed by a third, their little sister. A few years later, their younger cousins across town wanted to learn, so then came four and five. Four and five were followed by protests from their baby sister, who was too young for lessons. She wore a sad puppy dog face, batted her big eyes until tears spilled down her fat cheeks and sobbed in her mommy's arms. It is difficult to always be the last in line. Her lessons are going well in that she knows her left from her right and can often find middle C. Even Mozart started somewhere. She was late for her lesson the other day. The older two had finished and it was her turn, but she was nowhere in sight. I waited, shuffled music books, looked at their toy horses lined up in a row, inspected a recently assembled Lego truck, and waited some more. As I was about to hunt her down, she appeared around the corner, rain boots, a long-sleeved maroon play dress, and pink sweatpants. What took you so long? I asked. I had to wash my hands, she said. Climbing onto the bench, I found a worm outside. Her eyes narrow, and she says, it was alive. She waits for a reaction, but I am nonchalant, just grateful she washed her hands. I picked it up, she says. She thinks she has me now. Maybe Grandma will scream or run, scared, straight up a wall. What did it feel like? I calmly asked. Silence. She's thinking. It was soft and hard. The worm was soft, but it had dirt all around it, and the dirt was hard. I'm the one thinking now. Where's the worm? If it's in her pocket, how long before it is slung before over B-flat? I don't ask. Let's begin, I say. She looks at me, looks at the keyboard, volume button, then looks at me. Don't, I say. This is part of the routine. She wants to crank the volume, but her dad works from home. Lessons are always on the lowest volume setting, much to her chagrin. Your shirt looks funny, I say. She pulls at the neckline, flips out the tag, and announces, It's backwards day. Her pants are on backwards, too. Her sisters weren't wearing their clothes backwards. She has declared backward day on her own. No, I don't want to turn my shirt around and wear it backward. 
Ten minutes into the lesson and not a single note of Twinkle Twinkle Little Star has been played. Finally, she taps a pudgy index finger with dirt under the nail on one note at a very slow but ever-growing confidence. Wonderful, I say. I pull out a sheet of animal stickers and tell her to choose two. She chooses a pig and a worm. She disappears yelling, Mom, I got a worm. Mom can figure it out for herself. Lori Bergman is a columnist, author, and speaker. Her book, What Happens at Grandma's Stays at Grandma's, is now available. Email her at lori at loriborgman.com. This is from the obituary page. There is one obituary today. Heidi Patrice Finnerty. Heidi Patrice Finnerty, age 58, passed away peacefully at Florence Home Healthcare on March 5, 2023. She was born February 3, 1965, to Hugh and Sharon Kohlhoff Finnerty, Jr., in Council Bluffs. Heidi graduated from Abraham Lincoln with the class of 1983. She was preceded in death by her father, Hugh Finnerty, Jr. Heidi is survived by her mother, Sharon Finnerty, son Joshua Hughes, in parentheses, Sidney James, brothers Hugh Finnerty III, in parentheses, Loatis, and Heath Finnerty, in parentheses, Jen Stevens, grandson Deegan Hughes, granddaughter Piper James, cousins and friends. Memorial service will be held at 1 p.m. at Hoyle Kanoski Funeral Home, Sunday, March 12, 2023. The family will direct memorials. Hoyle Kanoski Funeral Home and Crematory, 1221 North 16th Street, Council Bluffs, Iowa, 51501. Phone number 712-256-9988. Web address www.hoyfuneral.com. Now from the sports section. The main article has a photograph associated with that. The caption reads, Iowa sophomore Josh Ogundale celebrates after making a basket during the first half of the Hawkeyes win over Purdue in the 2022 Big Ten Tournament Championship game in Indianapolis. Ogundale was one of several reserves who provided important contributions to Iowa's four wins in four days run to the tourney title. Hawkeye depth will be a tourney factor. Steve Batterson, Quad City Times. It takes a village. As the Iowa basketball team prepares to tip off play in the Big Ten tournament, Iowa coach Fran McCaffrey knows one thing. The Hawkeyes will need a deeper rotation of players if they hope to have an extended run this week at the United Center in Chicago. Iowa has leaned heavily on a veteran seven-player rotation in recent games. Just once in the Hawkeyes' last 10 games has any reserve beyond Peyton Stanford or Patrick McCaffrey played more than seven minutes, and that came five games ago when Josh Dix was on the court for 11 minutes during a 20-point loss at Northwestern. Beginning with the Hawkeyes, Thursday, 1.30 p.m. tourney opener, McCaffrey said contributions from additional players will be needed. You try to win that game. That's always the priority. But at the same time, you know you're going to need your bench, so you've got to get those guys in there and have them get ready to help, McCaffrey said. It might be foul trouble, God forbid it's an injury, things like that, but those guys have to be ready. While Dix and Iowa's other freshman, DeSante Bowen, 
have seen only limited minutes this season, McCaffrey trusts both to contribute as needed while playing in their first Big Ten tourney. It's the first time going through it. They've watched it on TV before, and it's one thing for the coach to say, hey, stay ready, your time is coming. But those two have stayed locked in, McCaffrey said. The pair have each averaged just under 10 minutes per game overall for the season. But in the Hawkeyes' last 10 games, Dix has averaged 5.6 minutes and Bowen just 1.1 minutes. They haven't played as much recently, but they are grinding in practice. They're paying attention to the scouting report, and they've been impressive, McCaffrey said. I feel confident going to those two if we have to. McCaffrey said Tuesday the, the pair, along with front court reserves Josh Ogundale and Riley Mulvey, are expected to be ready as needed to join Sanford and Patrick McCaffrey in leading Iowa's effort off the bench. It's a role Chris Murray, an understudy to his brother Keegan Murray in last year's Big Ten tourney, and Sanford understand. This time of year, it takes everybody, Chris Murray said. You have to be ready to step in and go. It's postseason basketball. McCaffrey pointed to the contributions Agondale made in 10 minutes of playing time in last year's title game win over Purdue, neutralizing the size of the Boilermakers. Sanford came off the bench to knock down all four shots he attempted in the championship game as well. You have to stay ready for the moment, Sanford said. You have to be ready to step in when you're called on. Patrick McCaffrey, who has filled a reserve role since returning from taking a pause in his junior season to deal with anxiety issues, could be positioned as a significant contributor in the Hawkeyes' postseason success. He enters the Big Ten tourney coming off of a 23-point performance in Sunday's loss to Nebraska, hitting a career-high six three-point shots and grabbing four rebounds. The junior said his shot is starting to feel good again, and he's regaining stamina that was lost as he sat out most of the month of January. I'm a confident pay- player, Ma- Patrick McCaffrey said Sunday. Coaches and teammates have confidence in me to come in and shoot the ball. It obviously helps when the shots are going in, but I think this game is going to help a lot moving forward. It gave me some of my swagger back. The timing couldn't be better for Iowa. Murray said the season has prepared the Hawkeyes 19-12 to well for what lies ahead. We've played the toughest schedule we've played since I've been here, and we've handled things well for the most part, he said. We know it's not going to be an easy tournament. There are a lot of good teams in the Big Ten, but we've shown that we can compete with anybody. Equally important, Murray said Iowa has shown it can work together to find success. We're going to need everybody to play their game, do what we've been doing all season, and if that happens things will work out, Mary said. We know from last year it's going to take contributions from everybody. We need everybody's best effort. That's the biggest thing now. Everybody has to do their thing. Next article, March Madness, Tar Heels Hopes Dim, includes a photograph with the caption, Duke guard Jeremy Roach, number three, and North Carolina guard R.J. Davis collide as they vie for the ball during last Saturday's game. This is from the Associated Press. March Madness is coming up fast, and here's what to know, along with some key games to watch and who's on the bubble ahead of Selection Sunday for the NCAA tournament. Key dates. All eyes will be on the conference tournaments this weekend. The ACC tournament started things off Tuesday in Greensboro, North Carolina. The Big 12 tournament will be March 8 through 11 in Kansas City, Missouri. The Big 10 tournament will be March 8 through 12 in Chicago. The Big East Tournament will be March 8 through 11 in New York. The Pac-12 Tournament will be March 8 through 11 in Las Vegas. And the 
SEC tournament will be March 8 through 12 in Nashville, Tennessee. March Madness. Selection Sunday is March 12th when bracket matchups will be set for the first four and the first and second round games that stretch from Florida to California. Sweet 16 weekend will see games in New York City, East Region, Las Vegas West, Kansas City, Missouri Midwest, and Louisville, Kentucky South. Where's the final four? In Houston on April 1st with the championship game on April 3rd. Basketball aficionados, take note. The Women's NCAA Tournament will hold its Final Four in Dallas, a four-hour drive up from the road from Houston. Betting Guide. Who's going to win the national championship? With the regular season over, the betting favorites as of this week to reach the Final Four are Houston, Alabama, Kansas, and UCLA, according to the FanDuel Sportsbook. That differs from the top teams in the NCAA's initial seed watch, which had Purdue in the top four, not UCLA. All of this matches many of the teams in the AP Top 25, too. Bubble Watch. North Carolina, 19-12. The Tar Heels had a chance to strengthen their NCAA tournament chances against Duke last weekend and failed with a 62-57 loss. Now the preseason, number one, needs to avoid an early exit in this week's ACC tournament or Selection Sunday could be a very nervous day. Arizona State. 20-11. The Sun Devils picked up a huge resume-boosting win at number 8 Arizona on Desmond Cambridge Jr.'s 60-foot buzzer beater. Getting swept up on the road by the Pac-12 Southern California teams puts them in the position of possibly needing a couple of wins in the conference tournament to get into the field of 68. Wisconsin, 17-13. The Badgers missed an opportunity with a two-point loss to number 5 Purdue in their penultimate regular season game. Wisconsin could use a good run in the Big Ten tournament starting Wednesday against Ohio State. WAC Utah Valley won the Western Athletic Conference's regular season title, but is not the number one seed in this week's conference tournament in Las Vegas. Sam Houston, which finished a half game behind the Wolverines, got the number one seed based on the conference's new analytics-based seeding model. It could be a wacky week in the WAC. Games to watch. Providence, 21-10 versus number 11 UConn, Big East Tournament quarterfinals Thursday, FS1. The Friars had been in solid NCAA tournament shape before closing the regular season with home losses to number 15 Xavier and Seton Hall. Beating the Huskies could give Providence a huge boost. The teams split their matchups this season, each winning at home by 12. Auburn, 20-11 versus Arkansas, 19-12. SEC Tournament Quarterfinals, Thursday, SECN. As statement wins go, the Tigers, 79-70, takedown of number 17 Tennessee in the regular season finale was massive. Auburn faces another tough challenge in its SEC tournament opener against Arkansas. The Razorbacks closed the regular season with three straight losses, so winning at least one game in Nashville would make them feel a whole lot better on Selection Sunday. Next, Jim Bohem retires after 47 years as Syracuse coach from the Associated Press. The image associated with this article has a caption that reads, Syracuse head coach Jim Hope Boheim watches during Tuesday's loss against Wake Forest in the second half of the Atlantic Coast Conference Tournament in Greensboro, North Carolina. Jim Boheim, 
enrolled at Syracuse in 1962, played there until 1966, started coaching there in 1969, took over the program as head coach in 1976. Put simply, he was Syracuse basketball. Until now. The Basketball Hall of Famer's 47-year tenure as coach at Syracuse came to an awkward end on Wednesday, with the university saying Orange associate head coach and former Syracuse player Adrian Autry had been promoted to the job. The Orange moved quickly, making the announcement less than three hours after Syracuse lost to Wake Forest in the Atlantic Coast Conference Tournament. And if Boehm knew the announcement was coming, he didn't let on, at what was his final post-game news conference. It's up to the university, Boehm said. They have to make their decision, and it's up to them. The university didn't wait long from before making the decision public, saying in part, Today, as his 47th season coaching his alma mater comes to an end, so too does his storied career at Syracuse University. Associate head coach Adrian Autry, 94, one of Boehm's former players and longtime assistant, has been named the program's next head coach. Autry has been on Boehm's staff since 2011 and held the title of associate head coach since March 2017. There have been very few stronger influential forces in my life than Syracuse University and Jim Boehm, Autry said. They have both played such important roles, and without either of them, I'm certain I would not have had this incredible opportunity before me. The 78-year-old Boehm's record in his 47 seasons officially was 1,015 to 444. That reflects 101 wins away taken away by the NCAA for violations between the 2004 to 07 and the 2010 to 2012 seasons. Whether the count was 1015 or 1016, only now retired Duke coach Mike Krasinski had more wins than Boehm at that division one level. Boehm led the Orange to the 2003 national title Carmelo Anthony's lone season in Syracuse and saw 46 of his players get taken in NBA drafts. Among them, Anthony, Derek Coleman, Roni Sakali, Dion Waiters, Billy Owens, Sherman Douglas, and Pearl Washington. Bohm was also a USA basketball assistant under Krasuski on the teams that won Olympic gold medals in 2008, 2012, and 2016. I've been very lucky to be able to coach my college team to play and then be an assistant coach and then a head coach, never having to leave Syracuse, Boehm said in that post-game news conference, one in which he hinted at retirement and then hinted at returning. It's a great university. He has in many ways been the face of that university. Boehm and his wife, Julie, through their family foundation, have raised millions for children's causes across central New York. He helped champion what became known as the Coaches versus Cancer Phenomenon with the American Cancer Society. The 2-3 zone defense he used almost exclusively caused opponents fits for decades. His dedication was unwavering. The best examples were how he wanted to return to work earlier than doctors wanted after he was treated for prostate cancer in December 2001. The team was struggling and needed him. Boheim said that at that time, and how he went to work at 12.01 a.m. on the day his nine-game suspension for NCAA violations was lifted during the 2015-2016 season. He's given his heart and soul to that school, said Washington coach Mike Hopkins, a former Boheim assistant. Still surprised they don't have a statue made of him in the middle of the campus. When you think of Syracuse University, you think of Jim Boheim and you think of the Carrier Dome, and now both of those will be gone, which is very sad.
The dome still stands, just with a different name. The program will continue, just with a different coach. For the first time since 1976, someone other than Boheim is now the head coach of the Orange. Jim has invested and dedicated the majority of his life to building his, this program, cultivating generations of student athletes, and representing his alma mater with pride and distinction, Chancellor Kent Suverode said in a statement distributed by the school. Boheim has been synonymous with Syracuse for more than six decades. He was born in the central New York town of Lyons, not far from Syracuse. He enrolled at the school in 1962 as a walk-on, eventually becoming a captain of the then Orange Men along with Dave Bing. In 1969, he was hired at Syracuse as a graduate assistant, and on April 3, 1976, he took the program over after Roy Danforth left for Tulane. Boheim has led the program since. Even the court at the Dome, where Syracuse plays in its home games, has borne his name since 2002. There will never be another Jim Boheim, Buddy Boheim, one of Boheim's sons, who played for him at Syracuse, tweeted, tweeted Wednesday. The greatest coach, father, and mentor I could ever ask for. A man that gave a city, program, and university everything he had his whole life with countless accomplishments, Excited for a lot of golf in our future. Love you, Pops. The Orange were 17 and 15 this season and will miss the NCAA tournament for a second consecutive season. That led to criticism, which led to questions about Boheim's future and what the school would ultimately decide. It's an honor to play for Coach Boheim, Syracuse's Benny Williams said after the loss to Wake Forest. A low point came in November 2011. Bernie Fine, then Syracuse's associate head coach was fired after being accused of sexual abuse by two former Syracuse ball boys. Boheim initially called the ball boys liars out to get money, then apologized for being insensitive to victims of abuse and took responsibility. Fine was never charged. Syracuse reached the NCAA tournament 35 times under Boheim, went to the final four in five of those appearances, won 10 Big East regular season titles, and five more titles in that conference's tournament. I've been just so lucky to be able to coach at Syracuse, a place I love, a place I love to live, Boheim said. People keep wondering about that, but maybe that's a flaw I have. But I've lived in Syracuse my whole life, and I'll live there hopefully a long time into the future. I think it's a great place. Reaction was mixed when word of the coaching change reached the Syracuse campus. Chris Davis, a freshman, wondered if a coach change would hurt the Orange. It's disappointing, to be honest, Davis said. It hurts the students who are here. To see him gone is heartbreaking. Senior Gracie Kerrigan was surprised by the move, saying, It's shocking. He had such a great career. You almost thought he'd be here forever, so it's shocking that it's actually happening. Added freshman Benjamin Pearl said, Obviously, massive shoes to fill. I have faith in Coach Autry and the coaching staff. Syracuse clearly has faith in Autry as well. He played in 121 games in his four seasons for Boheim, then spent more than a decade on the bench with his former coach. I've spent much of my time in the game of basketball learning from Jim, and I am so grateful to him for preparing me to carry on the winning tradition that is orange basketball, Autry said. And that brings us to the end of today's reading of the Council Bluffs Daily Nonpareil for Thursday, March 9th, 2023. The Nonpareil can be heard each weekday at 3 p.m. Iris volunteers love to hear from listeners. If you have any comments or questions about today's broadcast or any Iris program, 
please call toll-free from anywhere in Iowa at 877-404-4747. I'm Lynn McCool from Drake University in Des Moines. Thank you for listening.